Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome, everyone, to Somewhere in the Skies. As usual, I am your host, Ryan Sprague, and I am so excited today. This is an interview that I have been waiting to do for a very, very long time. We're going to be talking about this revolutionary new project that is headed by one of my favorite people in the quote-unquote UFO community, enemy of UFO Twitter, and just one of the coolest guys I know, working on this brand new UFO tracking device. And we're going to talk all about how it works, um, how you can get involved with this, and everything else going on with UFOs in 2021. So without further ado, here is the host of the Mad Scientist podcast and on the advisory board, the head of the advisory board for Skyhub, Dr. Chris Cogswell. Chris, how's it going, my man? Good, man. It's going really well. How are you doing? I am good. Uh, I have mentioned on the last episode I was able to escape New York, and I'm uh, I'm here on the island of Oahu for the umpteenth time. I'm starting to think people probably think I'm like in the witness protection program because I'm escaping to these remote places so often. But um, no, things are good for me, brother. How about you? Things are going well. You know, I um, yeah, haven't escaped anywhere as nice as Oahu, but I, I occasionally make my escape up to New Hampshire still in the mountains. So that's, that's always nice. But yeah, doing well. Dude, give me East Coast, uh, like fall, uh, over anything. Like yeah, I'm not a best. beach guy. I'm not a swimmer. So like, yeah, it's great. It's Hawaii. And I feel very fortunate, but I'm not like one of these people who's like, let's go, let's go. I, I like doing this stuff all the time. So Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, totally know. feel you, man. Yeah, napping under yeah. a tree in the middle of the autumn. <laughs> it's nice and crisp outside. You can't beat uh, it. And then, and then you wake up full of bugs, which is uh, – Full of bugs. <laughs> not great, yeah. but whatever. It's fine. We move fast. Exactly. Your pumpkin spice lattes tipped over <laughs> and um, someone stole your wallet. Yep. <laughs> yep. So East Coast. Got to love it. Love it, brother. Awesome. Well, I know we could talk weather and locations for a while, but um, that's not why you're here. We're here to talk about Skyhub, which is so amazing. But before we get to what it is, how it works, how you're involved, um, for any of our new viewers or listeners, I want to kind of catch them up to uh, who you are, what you do, how you got involved with the UFO topic, and um, what brought you into this crazy community that we've all found ourselves in and yeah give us a the origin story if you don't mind 
Yeah, sure. So I was bitten by a radioactive scientist uh, at the age of 10. No. Um, so I got involved initially because so my my family is definitely one who tends to believe in more. Uh, my family tends to be one that believes in sort of, you know, non-scientific things at times and things that I think the public would think of as sort of more fringe or out there belief systems. But at the same time, my family was very grounded in the sciences and in history and philosophy. And so, you know, my – at our at family kind of gatherings, we were, you know, as likely to sort of talk about, um, you know, religious philosophy and dogma and whatever as astrology or, you know, ghosts or UFOs or whatever. So my family was very sort of steeped in that view, and I think it's because my, my family is made up of immigrants. So – when I was a kid, I, you know, was always pushed by my family to go into something technical and, you know, do really well in school and learn and everything else. But also there was always sort of a, an edge of mysticism and sort of fantasy and folklore in, you know, imbued in everything. And so when I got to sort of high school and then to college and then even in grad school, I've always been really interested in why, why people who are, you know, intelligent, good people can sometimes fall for fall for people who are trying to take advantage of them, whether it's people who fall into cults or people who uh, give money to a psychic to, you know, talk to the dead, dead relative or something, or even the UFO subject, right? Why does someone pay thousands of dollars to go on a, you know, whatever, an ancient aliens cruise or something? And so that's always been really interesting to me. And at the same time, I've always thought that there, you have this group of people, this large group of people who are making claims and the scientific community, the sort of wider public just discounts their, their stories out of hand, or at least used to discount their stories sort of out of hand. And I always thought that was really unfair because, you know, the people who have these sightings, it's not just, you know, crackpots or people who are, uh, you know, I don't know, drunks or whatever, and they come home and they're like, I was abducted, right? Like, that's not what happens. Um, it's pilots, it's it's teachers, it's lawyers, it's mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. And, you know, people from all walks of life have these experiences. And so for me, another part of it was always the interest in you have this community who claims that something is happening to them in many cases, something very traumatic and disturbing. And yet, you know, and, and they have real effects, you know, they have real, uh, real negative things happen to them. I mean, we've, we've been at conferences together where people come forward and tell their stories and, you know, it's a grown man sobbing in front of a room of a hundred people that he's never met. You know, that's, that's more than just, you know, again, we might not be able to say what the what actually happened to that person, but that's more than just someone making up something for attention. That that that, that doesn't fly with me. That doesn't make sense. So, when I was in grad school, I started doing a podcast, uh, the Mad Scientist podcast, on sort of this question of the philosophy and history of science, and why do people believe these things, and is there anything to them, and and you know all those sorts of things. And a listener actually reached out and basically said, you know, 
basically said something like, you know, you're so smart. Why don't you get involved then? You know, like, you know, and I was like, oh, it's kind of a good point. Right? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm making all these claims and I'm like, I can, I can, I bet I can figure this out in a week. And, you know, stupid stuff you say on the internet. And, um, and then after talking it through with other people who I consider to sort of be mentors to me in the science world, in the academic world, in the in industry, and then in um, the skeptical world, you know, basically everyone said, you know, if you think if you think that that's a route forward to talk to these people and understand them and you know work with people who've had these experiences, then you should do it because it's a good you're coming at it from a good place. Yeah. And that's really why I got involved. And that initially led me to kind of talking to people. And, you know, I was lucky to, um, I was lucky to end up meeting a lot of people who were very interested in my background and research work and, and everything else. And my take on this, that led me to doing work with uh, MUFON for a little while, which didn't turn out so well. <laughs> Because yeah. MUFON just like refuses to learn from their mistakes, um, you know, and uh, just keeps making bad, you know, worse and worse and worse decisions. But anyways, we could go into that. It's a whole other can of worms. It's a whole other show. Um, I know. <laughs> you know, but suffice it to say that I've I've tried to be involved in this in a way that lets me retain, obviously retain my own credibility because I have I need to you know I have a day job. I want to continue working in the sciences and in in the in the fields that I work in but also still able to do sort of outreach and engagement with people who have had these experiences, who believe these things and try to get to some sense of what is really happening here. And that, I, I guess sort of my, I, I, I am a very critical voice in the UFO community generally. And so because of that, I have uh, less friends than, <laughs> than others do in the community um, but I think that the people and the groups that I have worked with and we've built have been of a very high caliber. And, and again, just generally, you know, it's really easy to be on Twitter and say, this is all just people making this up. But again, you know, the thing I always come back to is if it's all made up, that's much scarier than if it's UFOs. If it's all made up, yeah. that means that there is, you know, that, that means that, it's, it would be so easy then for a foreign adversary to start a blog and manipulate the public, you know, and we're seeing some of that with sort of, you know, politics today worldwide with conspiracy theories and anti-vaccination feelings and everything else. But it's a lesson that, you know, it's something that people in the UFO world have sort of been yelling about for, for decades you know, I'm not the first researcher to say that, hey, if you can understand why a UFO grifter is able to make money off of their, um, their you know, desert getaway packages, then, um, then you can understand how propaganda spreads in a, in a community. And so that's sort of, I guess, you know, so – that's how I got to before Skyhub. Um, so how I got involved with Skyhub was really Skyhub initially was another was an idea for something like Skyhub has been sort of floating around the UFO community 
for a while. And mm-hmm. actually, products are not really products, but um, tools like Skyhub have actually been something that was of interest for the military and you know astronomers and um, NASA and and other kind of you know governmental groups for a very long time. Actually, since basically the launch of Sputnik. The idea of tracking and understanding what's in the skies above us has been of, of great interest. Yeah. Um, public groups that have done this include like CAMS via SETI or other kind of meteor projects or, you know, um, we- even weather stations in some way or a type of sky hub or a type of, you know, uh, sky um, surveillance recognition platform. But the problem with those previous methods have been that they're all very large and bulky and costly and everything else. Um, and my Skyhub is this big. This is my Skyhub. <laughs> That's crazy, right? man. It connects, it connects to a camera. Um, I just plug it in. That's my Skyhub. So, you know, the, the increases in technology and computing power and the shrinking of electronic hardware has gotten to the point now that what before we had to do with like an entire, you know, um, like a weather truck, right? You can do with a Raspberry Pi or a Jetson um, and some software. So yeah. it's that's really what was what was intriguing to me about the Skyhub project when the team originally approached me was you've heard about all these other projects. You obviously this has been out there for a long time. We can do it for cheaper, um, smaller. And we will do it in a way that is completely transparent to the public. And that to me was very, very, uh, that was the thing. That was really the hook that got me involved and made me want to, made me want to take part in the project. Yeah. And so, Um, yeah. Well, let me, let me, um, let's rewind just a little bit, Chris, if you don't mind, brother. Um, And that's a really good point. I do want to talk to you about the transparency uh, that you guys are doing over at Skyhub, but um, could you give us kind of, I guess, the origin of of Skyhub before you were approached? Um, who created this? Who's involved? And yeah, maybe kind of walk us through what Skyhub is, if you don't mind. I know that's a lot to ask, but um, yeah, maybe give us the origin of how it came to be, why you thought this was something you wanted to put your name on, and uh, yeah, maybe a little about the process of what Skyhub is. Absolutely. Yeah. So there are, um, so, okay. So to start with Skyhub, Skyhub really started as a effort by a group of developers. So software developers, um, who wanted to build a, who wanted to build a unit that could capture evidence of objects in the sky above us using Techniques and tools that would be beyond a question. So using machine learning and artificial intelligence to automatically capture and categorize objects or images of objects in the sky above us. The initial idea really came from um, Steve McDaniel, Corey Gaspard, and Adam Allen. And actually, initially, they were on a team with, um, they were on a team with Dr. Bob McGuire, that team sort of um, that team didn't work out, and so then Steve, Corey, and Adam um, kind of continued the software development on their own, and then from there um, we've we we sort of built Skyhub. And so I think I was the I think the next person to join the team was probably Richard Hopf, 
who is our hardware design and fabrication specialist. And I think it was me and then um, David Moore, um, who's our audio engineering and science, kind of science communication specialist. Um, we now have other members of the team as well, Paul Wright and Justin Phillips. Um, we have over 200 people in our, our Discord um, who currently participate and, and you know, help us develop and, and answer questions and things like that. But so the basic idea, though, or the basic um, concept of Skyhub is we build a, a system that is easy to assemble, relatively cheap to produce um, and build, and we provide the software to run it free of charge to the public. The public then puts the thing together. They buy the stuff from other places. Um, they put it together themselves based on instructions we give them. And then they deploy them out in their backyards and on their roofs and, and wherever. And the software, what it does is as an object comes into frame above the camera, it automatically turns on and starts recording um, the video. And then on the back end, a system um, using artificial intelligence tells or, or sort of picks out from those images what is a bird, what is an airplane, what is an insect. And then ultimately what's left behind would be the unknowns. That's okay. So that was kind of my my next question for you is once the um, – you know, the recording starts and you start getting that data in. How exactly does the machine learning play into uh, differentiating these objects? So is it like, okay, we we have five different sky hubs out there monitoring um, whatever. Let's say a Cessna plane that goes by. Does mm-hmm. the machine then know, all right, these are the properties of the Cessna according to our sort of observational um look at it and keep, you know, is it, okay, now we have all of these are Cessnas, all of these are meteors, all of these are blah, blah, blah. And then the true unknown, how does that all work? So just, okay. So just to start, just to begin with, yeah, artificial intelligence and machine learning are buzzwords that are used all over the place to seem way more complicated than they are. (laughs) Um, your, your technically any system where, a sensor measures a set point and then tells a computer to change something to get back to the set point is doing artificial intelligence. Okay. Right. So a a thermometer. So in your house right now, you have a thermometer um, or a, a thermostat that measures the temperature in the rooms of your home. And you can set the temperature to be at like 60 degrees, 65 degrees. If you're a weirdo might like me, you set it at 60 degrees and then you wear a sweater. <laughs> me too, brother. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, if you're like me, you do that and then your wife is wearing a blanket. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that oh, feeling well. You know, that's, that's one or the other, right? So, but um, that system, that system is a very, very simple version of artificial intelligence because what it's doing is it is taking a measurement and then changing something making something happen to get to a certain set point or a certain value. So in many ways, like com- like control systems, control schemes, sensors, those sorts of things with like control systems um, are a very simple version of artificial intelligence. In our case, the artificial intelligence is more complicated, but it's still basically just, we give it a list of say 20 to 30 um, set points 
that we say, okay, if you if you measure these things, it's an airplane. If you measure these things, it's a meteor. If you measure these things, it's a bird or a, an insect or whatever. So that's basically how the artificial intelligence works. The set points are the things that we're actually looking at in terms of what we want the machine to be able to differentiate between are um, motion. So in other words, an airplane, if you're thinking about the, the camera itself, is looking up at the sky. If you think about a, an airplane as it travels across the frame of the of, of the vision of the camera, the airplane will maybe it starts you know it starts coming in here, and then it'll fly at a very set path and it takes a straight line path usually. Whereas if we think about something like you know uh, Elizondo's five observables, let's say. Um, one of them is like non-ballistic motion, right? So the object bounces all over the place. We can do things with the video. So the first step is making the camera recognize that an object um, is coming into frame. Then all we do is we measure how the object moves across the video. So every frame where it moves from that, we can get things like its speed, its acceleration, its direction, we can tell how straight the path is. So is the path tortuous or not? Um, we can tell all kinds of other things like that. And then we have other sensors too that can tell us, you know, this is an airplane, this is a whatever. All the artificial intelligence is doing is if it sees a certain number of those things that fit within, say, the bucket of airplane, it marks it as an airplane. Does that kind of make sense in that in that case, Ryan? Oh, yeah, totally. Because okay. I think, again... It's all about differentiating these objects. That's that's the point of this until yeah. you get to the true unknown. That's now, always the bottom and the least likely. But exactly. Yeah. Now the way the way that the machine learning works is if you can give a computer instructions to say, okay, I want you to measure a thousand videos of an object. I'm telling you that these objects are airplanes. Right, so I have to know that they're airplanes beforehand. I have to tell the computer it's an airplane. Right. And then what the computer does is it measures those metrics, again, that we tell it to measure for, speed, acceleration, tortuosity, um, displacement vector, whatever, those other things. We tell the machine to measure those things. And then at the end of it, it essentially says, okay, well, based on the thousand measurements I've now taken of an airplane, this is what the airplane profile looks like. So airplanes have a velocity between this value and this value, and most of them are here. And so mm-hmm. within 95% confidence, I can say that if you have a velocity of this, you're an airplane. That's a very simple example. We're not going to be able to do it just based off velocity. But the so that's the way the machine learning works. It's really it's instead of us giving the computer the set point, right, we let the computer determine what the most likely set point is for a set of data. That so is like, so cool. Yeah. So you know, imagine, imagine, you know, Elon Musk. Um, Elon Musk gets, you know, whatever. It's a hundred years from now, and Elon Musk has turned us all into robots, and we have microchips in our brains or whatever. <laughs> um, imagine if your thermostat was able to measure how comfortable you were. Right. It's right, right. Basically, you would be telling it, okay, well, I want you to measure for things like is the person perspir, you know, are they sweating? Are they breathing heavy? Are they red in the face? Are they whatever? Um, or measuring your internal temperature, maybe. 
and then changing the thermostat to fit to where your internal temperature hits the right set point. So machine learning is basically just, again, it's just another kind of fancy way of saying instead of it being a person or like interns for us or whatever, getting all that data ourselves um, by doing pen and paper math, we let a computer do it. That's all it is. And so over, and so, yeah. So over time then, um, and so in that way, then you basically can, if your system is good enough, um, ultimately the goal would be that we would be able to find the easiest, cheapest, and by cheap, I mean cheap computationally, not necessarily cheap economically, but like, you know, the, the most, uh, the most accurate measurement we can do with the, with the smallest number of sort of cycles of math we have to do to tell this is a bird, this is a plane, this is a whatever. Yeah. Expediting the process. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's really where, that's where kind of continuous machine learning comes in where um, after a while, like right now, let's say we have a data set with, I don't know, 10,000 videos of airplanes, right? And that, that's just a random number. I don't, it's <laughs> just off picking a random number. I don't know how many, you know, I don't know, whatever, but let's say we get that data set of 10,000. Um, eventually with a complicated enough system, you can find other data points that like, so for example, airplanes have airplanes all give off a signal telling other airplanes or air traffic controllers, Hey, we're an airplane. We're in the area. Mm-hmm. That is like a 100%. It's an airplane, right? That's, that's a definite signal that it's an airplane. So we could train our models to say, if you get that signal, whatever you're viewing is an airplane and then train it based on that, right? That's one way to say, do kind of continuous machine learning again, where you don't need to be inputting all the time videos of airplanes, but yeah. Yeah. And so it gets more and more complicated. Yeah. Right. What I think, and you stress this um, quite well, is that the public and those involved and those using the program are literally helping to uh, evolve the algorithms, evolve Skyhub. I saw in an interview where I believe you said, you know, this, this software, this, uh, this device, this technology is constantly evolving. So it's not like Skyhub is just developed, built and game over. Like it's done. This is this is cool because it is constantly in motion and learning and growing and um, helping us to figure out what the hell these phenomena are. And, you know, I've been sent several Skyhub videos uh, by people who have, um, you know, purchased what they needed to create Skyhub mm-hmm. and um, get the data out into the cloud. And uh, some of them, dude, have been really compelling i mean there was one i recently saw of what we thought might have been a plane and then totally made a 90 degree turn out of nowhere and took off so again you're talking about kind of those observables that the pentagon looked at um so i guess my next question for you would be what are some of the stuff you guys have come across i mean yeah of course meteors probably starlink satellites are one of the big ones but um any really intriguing ones that have kind of left you guys over at Skyhub scratching your head so far? I, honestly, I think one of the coolest things about this project so far has been just how 
just how unexpected the results have been. You mm. know, if, if you if you thought to yourself, okay, I'll put a camera outside my, my house, it's pointed up at the sky, and I'm gonna measure, you know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna see airplanes probably. I'll see birds, I'll see airplanes, I'll see some insects, you know, whatever. There is stuff in the sky all the time that that you know I would never consider or think we're we're in the sky above my house or uh, you know so for example um I think maybe one of my favorite ones is one of the units is is, is out in um is out in the United Kingdom just give it that that's as as close a locale as I want to give um and so the unit is there and it's in someone's garden and they captured somebody uh they captured somebody paragliding over like a residential in neighborhood you know there's a there's someone paragliding and if you had asked them at the beginning of this you know what do you think you're going to capture what do you think you're most likely to capture here i don't think in a million years they would have said they would capture a paraglider <laughs> <laughs> right like they, there's just no you know there's no way you would think oh yeah paraglider there's definitely paragliding going on here unless you know that it's happening you have no idea right so that's been really one interesting one another really interesting one i think and, and you highlighted it here too we've captured we've captured a uh, video of what are potentially drones i mean you know the we don't know what these objects are yet that we're capturing all the time i mean a paraglider is easy because it's like there's a guy, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, you know, unless it's like Batman, it's it's a guy in a paraglider or whatever. <laughs> but some of the, you know, most of the objects we capture are going to be points of light in the sky. You know, they're going to be dots of light. And so for those ones, that's really where a good analysis of the motion of them is what's important. But we've, we've yeah. captured some, though, that are... You know, it appears that the object comes very quickly in a frame. It, it goes down straight, then stops. Will sit there for a couple of seconds, and then takes off at another angle. It just shoots off. We've had a couple of those now, and you know, my best guess would be that they're drones. Um, but even then, that's kind of interesting. If they're drones, like what, you know, what's going on? Right? Like, yeah. what, who's flying a drone like that at nighttime? And kind of an interesting one. Another interesting one that we've captured, one of the units is in a, a, a fairly, I would say, remote location, and it keeps it, it captures a lot of military aircraft because it's near an air it's near an airport base or an air an air airport base. It's near a uh, you know um, it's near an air force airfield or something, an airfield, yeah, whatever yeah. military base. That one's captured some really interesting ones, you know military planes flying low and stuff like that, but also has captured, um, also has captured like what appears to be an object sort of breaking apart, maybe in reentry or something. We're not really sure what it is. It looks like it might be some kind of weather balloon or something. And I know that's cliche to say to, you know, UFO, it's a weather balloon, right? We're captured a lot of swamp <laughs> gas, Ryan. Um, but it, it does, you know, it again, looks like it, saying Chris is the enemy of UFO. Terrain. I'm, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming for you guys. It's all swamp gas. Our machine learning module just has one option: swamp gas. Um, <laughs> the object it appears like it's tethered to something else, and the thing that it's tethered to looks like it's kind of floating or lighter. You know, mm. but it looks like it's kind of metallic, and you know, it's it's an interesting, again, kind of an interesting video. So, 
you know, I think just overall we've captured just stuff you wouldn't expect. And, you know, the number of, like, shooting stars, um, you know, the International Space Station flybys we've captured. Like, you know, it's just, again, because we're still in very early stages for this. And that's mm-hmm. one thing we try to make clear to anybody. You know, people people all the time will come into our chat or on our website or whatever and send us emails and say, hey, you know, we want to give you the money to, to get a Skyhub. And our answer, I think, which is probably frustrating for most people is, whoa, 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 wait a second. Before you build a Skyhub, we need to tell you all these things. Like, we, we basically tell people a list of reasons why they shouldn't build one yet. You know, we're like, we're like, it's hard to do. There's a lot of troubleshooting. We're still making the software. We haven't really settled yet on, you know, the cameras and like, you know, just because it's early stages, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you were, um, if you were designing a, you know, if you were designing any other engineered product, um, you wouldn't start selling it before it was ready. <laughs> Right. You know, so we're, but I think for a lot of UFO people or people that are interested in this, that's something that's a little bit out of the ordinary for the field because usually people will start hyping things before, you know, someone will think, like, wouldn't it be great to have a machine learning method to capture UFOs? And then they will hype the hell out of it. <laughs> and they're on, they're right. on podcasts saying, you know, we're going to do this and all this other stuff. And like, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort and it's really hard. And so before we start doing that, we want to make sure people understand that if they are building one, if they're going to buy the parts, if they're going to um, help us with this, they are, they're developing with us. They're helping us. And just like any other kind of hobby where you're trying to work with a group of people to build something, it might not work. You know? Um, I mean, we've had promising results, but you know, we're not, you know, we're not ready. We're not ready to be sold in Target or whatever. We're never going to be sold in Target. <laughs> frankly, we're not trying to sell anything, you know. Right. So it's just a different, it's a different, I guess, way of doing things and a different way of viewing this. Like we we view ourselves as a, we view ourselves as a open science or citizen science project. And so what that means is, just like if you were part of a bird watching group in your local community you would be going to, you know, going to going on, on hikes maybe with other people and chatting with them online and sharing photos and videos and whatever. That's, you know, it's similar to what we're doing here. We're not, we don't charge people money to be part of our discord or to chat with us, or uh, we don't even sell like sky hubs. We don't, we don't sell anything. Um, People now can, can purchase an enclosure that was designed um, for us by one of our, uh, you know, our, our hardware designer, but that's, that's mostly a donation to the group. You know, we're, so we we try to make it clear. Like if you're going to come in and build these things, um, it's going to be a lot of work and it's not necessarily the easiest right now. Um, but that's just what designing something like this takes. Yeah. And, so, you know, I've, I've seen several individuals who have, you know, taken that initiative built the entire thing from scratch themselves, throw it on like their Humvees and and drive it all out in the desert, which is so cool, man, how remote this has become, which I think like you, you showing your own sky hub there is um, things have changed drastically in terms of how accessible these things can be. But because you said you're in the initial stages still, a lot of it rides on the individuals 
who are using it, who are creating it. And um, the open source data is another big thing, very positive thing, I think, um, to we're so used to like, whatever, MUFON or mm-hmm. NASA or the government being so cagey when it comes to sharing things they've seen or experienced when it comes to unknowns. And um, I think that's awesome that you guys are putting that out to the public. My question would be, um, and I know, again, this is very, very early in the stages of what you guys are doing. Um, could military or government programs or, um, you know, agencies, could they use the software and kind of the setup of Skyhub and uh, privatize that data and information? Um, you know, like we have the open source thing, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Everyone can be a part of it and talk about what they think it might be. But is there a chance that your technology or what you guys have created could be used, like you said, in the military or whatnot, and we never see any of that data? So, so first off, all of the Skyhub software is available to download online for free right now. Okay. So, um, if people want to, if, if say some group, forget the military, even if, if, if some group decided they wanted to build a private Skyhub software, right? So right now, the way that the code works is it goes to a public, uh, it goes to a database that, um, you know, again, we're still early on, so there's not data to share yet, really. I mean, we have videos and stuff, we put them on YouTube, but in terms of actual kind of data, we're, we're working on getting that pipeline sort of moving, privatizing it in a way that it's available for the public and all those other things. Someone could, in theory, I guess, go on and change the software so that it goes to a private server instead. And, you know, us at Skyhub have no control over that data and whatever. And so then it just it just goes out there. Um, someone could do that if they wanted to. You know, we're it's part of the danger of making a open source kind of citizen science like project um, is if a company wanted to, they could you know, they could do something like a Skyhub or something. But because we've done it and it's available on the internet already for free, and so the code itself that kind of builds it and underpins everything is available for free to the public, although some small section of the data might never get to the public, the bulk of the data would. Right? I mean, it's sort of a... Think about it like a camera, right? Um, I mean, a camera is kind of a bad example, I guess. I guess what I'm saying is if the if someone wanted to buy a Skyhub and keep it not connected to the internet, um, they could also kind of keep that data to themselves. It wouldn't work at this point, but, you know, someone could go in and make a private Skyhub network for themselves. Right. But the technology is freely available to the public. So even if the military wanted to come on and take it and use it and whatever, the military would just be putting them in places that the public couldn't. But the, the technology can never become like, you know, 
privatized. The technology at can that never point. just become privatized by something. Right. It's already out there. That's a good point. I think I understand your analogy of like, even if you threw a photo up on Facebook or whatever, like anyone yeah. can download it and then alter it or change it or use it how they want. You know, that's what's scary about Facebook. You think that stuff, yes. you're, you own that? Mm-mm, sorry, read the fine print, guys. But um, yes, yeah, you know, that's a good it, point. It's already out there. It's under a Creative Commons license. It's under an MIT kind of software license and things like that. So, you know, uh, people can, can download it and use it however they want. I mean, we're not stopping anybody from using Skyhubs, right? Like, that's not our goal at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know the the software is freely available on the internet. So yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a really good question. And frankly, if the military came out and or if the military came to us and said, "Hey, we want to use the Skyhub software," I'd probably say no. That would be tough. Yeah, kind of doesn't feel very good. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if NASA wanted to, that would be different, I think. Or if you know uh, SETI wanted to to utilize this or whatever. Like those are research. Those are that's for scientific research, right? The goal is for this to be done for scientific research. Um, so I guess that's the difference there. The application of it might become privatized or whatever for some parts of people or whatever, but the software itself, the tool itself, that cat's already out of the bag. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I've got some some really good listener questions in a little bit, Chris. But um, sure. this was kind of a big question that a lot of people had, and it befuddles me why they might not be using it but a lot of people want to know you know skinwalker ranch again this big buzzword this tv show this mysterious place um why aren't they using skyhub man i mean come on they they are like out there every day saying stuff is happening they're seeing aerial objects that defy explanation but you know, we're not seeing that 24-7. They're not monitoring the sky. 20. As far as I know, I could be wrong. But um, has anything like Skinwalker Ranch or any um, any other companies approached you guys about using this stuff yet? What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you and keep looking up. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so a lot of people have approached us. Um, I'm not going to give any particular names or anything because I think that would just, yeah, uh, go against sort of confidentiality and just, you know, just be kind of a kind of a dick move <laughs> so I'm not do that. Um, that's fair what i will what i will say though is that um so a lot of the times the issues come down to a lot of the times the issues are there's a couple of different issues one issue is that private data issue mm-hmm. that comes up a lot that is a real issue for some people and some groups and whatever because especially let's say if you're if you're working on maybe a project that you hope to um, publish a scientific study on or something like that, sometimes that data you want to keep under wraps before you publish it because you don't want somebody else to scoop you, frankly. So that's one, that's one area where there has been some discussion about, you know, okay, well that makes sense and you know, they're not going to use it or whatever. Another one is this, the units currently need to have access to a power source and need to have access to the internet. You know, and that's why, like, the OSIRIS project, let's say, is kind of an interesting, you know, offshoot of, of a, a user trying to make, you know, trying to make a better version of their Skyhub, right? Um, you know, our focus is on getting the software going, um, making sure that any bugs that are there are fixed, and making a unit that can work for our initial purposes, which was you can have it on the roof of your house, you can have it in your garden, um, kind of near the home. But things like, you know, applying, um, you know, getting Wi-Fi or something on there or um, solar panels to power it or other kind of power sources or whatever, all of that is kind of next stage development stuff that we haven't even really considered yet because we're trying to focus on getting this stuff done. So, you know, sometimes there's issues of logistics. Sometimes it's issue of data handling. Sometimes it's just, um, sometimes it's just people are busy doing other things. Frankly, you know, um, so yeah, I think that's that's probably the best I can give on that answer. Really, yeah, absolutely, that makes complete sense. Yeah, that, again, it's it's you guys stressing to people who want to take part in this. Like a lot of the legwork is on you, um, yeah. which is awesome. You guys apply, you, um, you give the software and you collect the data, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, you know, something like Osiris, I can understand like taking what Skyhub has created, building off of it and doing your, your cool thing out in the desert. So God bless Mr. Uh, McGowan for doing that. Um, I give him a very cool idea. It's one that we we would never have considered in a thousand years. Um, yeah, but yeah. So I, I wish him luck. It's a very cool. Yeah. It's a very cool application of it. Yeah, it's badass for sure. Um, well, speaking of videos, I want to kind of transition over to some recent stuff in the UFO, I guess, 
mainstream and talk to you about these videos released by Jeremy Corbell, uh, George Knapp. We saw these uh, flying pyramids or pizza slices that people have said in the um, recently. And we've also got an object possibly submerging into the ocean. Both Pentagon confirmed videos. They are authentic. They are apparently still unidentified. We don't know that for sure. But um, in terms of video analyzing, Chris, and kind of what you guys are doing over at Skyhub with uh, constant tracking, what do you make of these videos? And um, yeah, everything going on right now in the UFO world when it comes to these uh, these leaks, apparently. Are these leaks? What do you think? I've always, So I've always been cautious about making claims about any of these things too soon. Um, I've always tried to kind of give caution, but also always tried to take a pragmatic approach to any of these sorts of releases and things. My issue with the videos, or I guess the the thing that I see when I look at the videos, they're interesting. They're very interesting. The way that they've come out is interesting. And I think that the people who have pushed them out also are inevitably part of the story. It's really hard. It's really hard when you are like Corbell and Knapp have kind of, and even Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal and all of those figures have kind of inserted themselves into the stories. You know, they've, they've built for themselves their own mythos in UFO, uh, in UFO history and lore. So I think it's really, it's really disingenuous to expect the public or other researchers or, or scientists or whoever to just take the videos on their merits alone when there is so much history and, you know, bad actors and everything else um, kind of rolled up into the history and, and provenance of the videos and the, the intelligence that comes from them. So that's one thought, right? The, the, my main thought has always been, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sure I've said it on your show before. I've said it on many other shows before. For me, the, the concern has always been that any data that you get that comes from or comes through the kind of standard UFO media sources is fruit of the poison tree. You know, if someone came to me with a – if somebody came to me with a clear-cut video of a UFO, I would not – be the person to break the story on my podcast. Right? Because it's because it's an important piece of like evidence in history. I would bring it to the best people I could find for it. And so I think that the issue or one of the issues is that before this, the people you would bring it to have made it something, sometimes have made it about themselves. Or, or have become part of that story themselves. So that's issue number one. In terms of the videos themselves, the quality of the videos, they're interesting. I think actually probably the most interesting thing about them is hearing the people's, especially in the second video released of the kind of round infrared object um, or the infrared of the, of the round kind of heat signature dropping into the ocean. That one is interesting because you can hear the people giving the uh, kind of giving a play-by-play of what's happening to it. That that is very interesting. But in terms of what we would probably categorize them as, 
I mean, I think it's too early to say. I think it's hard to say, but they they don't they don't really appear to have any of the they don't behave differently enough from known objects to make them interesting. And that's kind of the problem I think sometimes with using a, you know, one question that people have given us that's a really good question is, well, what if the UFO is just flying like an airplane? Right. Um, (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah. Good question. Right. It's a really good question. And in that case, we're going to get a false negative, right? We're, we're going to measure, um, and say that it's an airplane when it isn't. It's really an unidentified or whatever it is. That's possible. But that's why you give other metrics as well. You don't just base it off of, you know, um, velocity or shape or whatever. You do other things. I think that the arguments on the first one of the triangle, I think the case that it is um, an object not really in frame is pretty convincing to me, unfortunately. <laughs> so you're talking like um, a like a bokeh, sort of an apparition of the camera. Yeah. Okay. Es- essentially, that the object itself, like the object itself, isn't is blurry, mm-hmm. right? And unless Mitch Hedberg's right, and you know Bigfoot is blurry, and that's why all his photos look blurry, <laughs> it's not really a great argument for why your video is blurry. So yeah. I think that one's kind of interesting, but I think again would probably be something that we would not we would not consider to be of interest, maybe. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's a triangle shape is of interest. That would be something we would notice. And our, our machine would notice, too, that the system would notice, hey, this is a triangle that's different than the shape of a normal airplane or a, an insect or whatever. But that's also why we our system ultimately is the goal is to have two cameras, one for initial detection and then the other one to focus and take a clear image. Oh, that's cool. Um, which is a really cool thing. And it's like, here I am, like before I said, you know, people come on and hype stuff before it's even developed. We haven't developed for it, but it's something we hope to develop soon. <laughs> um, the other the other one, the other video of kind of the round object that appears to sort of fall slowly to the ocean surface and then dip away. Again, it's sort of, an, uh, if we had that video, we probably would have we would think it's interesting it would be out of the realm of normal things that we'd expect but i do suspect that again if that one i think you just need more you you need more data on you know the argument the argument that it's like a balloon or something i mean maybe that kind of could make sense it could be a light piece of metal falling that's been heated and that's why it's got the, the ir flare around it or whatever you know, all of those, I mean, maybe, but, you know, it's for me at least, it starts to stretch credulity. Like, the idea that a, the idea that a single pilot or single Navy service member or whoever, that she or he would be mistaken about seeing an object once... Um, very quickly and having kind of a frightened reaction and whatever, that to me doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're really talking about here. We're talking about a group of people claiming to have all seen the same thing over a prolonged period of time at regular intervals. Mm-hmm. 
that is not going to just be every morning everyone on the ship wakes up and puts on their Boca glasses. You know, <laughs> that that isn't going to work. And so I think that in that case, we have a much more interesting question to ask. But again, the, the other thing that UFO people don't seem to want to or the people pushing the story don't want to um, really make note of is that a lot of these people have made extreme claims before and been proven wrong. You know, um, Bob Lazar didn't make a super mega element that let him travel through space, right? Like that, or aliens travel through space. Like that didn't happen. Um, and so it's part of, I think, the problem ultimately of people. people think that people at the same time think that science is this evil thing, keeping UFO world down and making fun of them and whatever, but then also think that UFO or or science is this perfect bastion where a single clear photo will get rid of a hundred years of uh, fraud and con men and grifters. Science is a human endeavor. (laughs) So, you need to think critically, um, is the person who's putting this evidence forward, have they cried alien before? If they have, don't use them. (laughs) They're not a good source anymore, right? Because, like, it it sounds harsh. It sounds terrible, especially considering you and I both have podcasts that talk about UFOs. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) if, if, if you are trying to get the best evidence out there or this story out there in a way that gets it taken seriously, you either have to have taken it seriously from the beginning and kind of been consistent with your arguments and everything else and try to stay away from the comment and everything else and whatever. Um, or you get to be a UFO media celebrity. You can't have both in my opinion, you know, you sometimes can, like I think your show is a good example here of you you listen to people's stories, you kind of take their views in, you're you're but you're also not really what's the word? You're also though you're you're almost more like a a, a commentator, right? So that's mm-hmm. it's a different it's a different place in the kind of storyline. Um if you're somebody though who's trying to produce evidence, that requires a different a different play in this world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you may, you bring up so many good points, Chris. And um, you do. And I mentioned this on my previous episode of, and I actually heard this from a fellow researcher, Nick Redfern said, when you are a UFO researcher and you're given videos, you're given documents, uh, things like this. Remember, you have to ask yourself, why me? Why did they choose me to -hmm. give this and say to put this out in the public. So I completely understand that, um, that side of what you're saying. My, um, I guess kind of to piggyback off of that in terms of these videos in retrospect, are these videos something that Skyhub can then look at and, um, analyze in terms of the, you know, the software that you've created. So can we, can we put old UFO videos into the data processing of Skyhub and possibly get some answers from them. Like if you could, I mean, holy shit, man, we would have 70 plus years of videos we can now look at. It's something we've considered before. Um, 
right now the camera, so let me show you quickly. The camera that Skyhub uses currently is a fisheye camera. So all of the metrics, all of the kind of machine learning, all of the stuff that we've built, all the software we've built has been built with a fisheye camera lens in mind. The other kind of value of Skyhub or something like a Skyhub is because the camera and the systems are all the same thing, um, or within the same realm of things, right? All of the data can be compared to each other. Um, it's kind of like back in the 80s or 90s when UFO investigative groups would give out, um, they would give to witnesses special cameras that they use for those sorts of things, right? That couldn't be tampered with and, and all this other stuff. Um, so to start with, at this point in time, no, that can't happen. However, it it isn't, hard to do something or it would not be impossible to do something like that. So there are, um, there are other, there are machine learning um, object detection or object categorization tools that are out there right now that are available on the internet for free that people can download. I mean, it takes a little bit of Python or Golang um, knowledge, but you know, if, if I was able to learn those things well enough uh, to, to kind of work with the software people for Skyhub, anyone can. I am not good at languages, and so it's yeah. you know, it's not super impossible, actually. Um, yeah, coding's not my thing either, man. <laughs> no, it's really, I'm, I've never been good at it, but it's something now that I've actually gotten, I have a reason to learn, right? So it's nice, I yeah. kind of can, can do it more. Um, so what I would say is, you know, for, so it's something we could build. It's something we could, we absolutely could build. It's not the current plan or it's not the current structure that's in mind. However, um, it would not be impossible to build. Yeah. In fact, cool. it might, in fact, it might be easier than, it might even be easier than Skyhub because Skyhub is using a fisheye lens <laughs> versus just a yeah. normal image. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. right. It's a really, you're it's a really right. good question. Yeah, so many variables would have to be put into play. You know, the camera that was used for that particular video, yeah. um, so much to it. I completely understand that. Where but, but still, you guys but, have something more immediate. Right. Still, though, it's, again, like, that is a huge part of... <clears throat> so right now, um, kind of object detection software engineer, kind of, you know, theory or whatever... The research world is kind of broken up into two major categories, I guess. One would be static object um, or static static detector or static camera. And the other would be like a motion or a moving camera, like a, a drone mm. or something, right? a camera on a drone. Um, the camera on the drone system has more study done with it, frankly, because I think it's more of interest to hotter topic. But that is actually probably closer to what we would have to do for something like what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a really good question, though. So, Chris, I want to move to some listener questions uh, that people were really excited to submit. I know some of these people are directly involved with Skyhub, either have the software, have been messing around with it, or they're really curious about um, your thoughts on some of this other stuff. So I'm going to start with um, Aaron on Twitter. Aaron asks, what do you expect Skyhub to look like? in 10 years. We kind of touched on this, what the future of Skyhub is, but yeah, man, 10 years from now, I don't even want to know where oh, humanity man, is going to be at, let alone Skyhub. But yeah, what do you think? 
I was gonna say, let's hope for uh, let's hope that we're all still, uh, you know, civilization is still standing. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, also, Aaron has been a huge, uh, a hugely uh, important new member of the team. Actually, his his camera is like his camera is like in the best possible place. It's so interesting. Like anytime we capture something interesting, there's like a seventy five percent chance it's from Aaron. Um, <laughs> at this point in time, it's it's, it's ridiculous. Dude, he sent me some of the videos, um, yeah. and man, those things, I, I don't even know how you can begin to describe some of the things he's captured so he's, far, but he's that's what you guys some, are for. Yeah, I know. He's capturing some really cool things, uh, which is yeah. which is amazing. So in 10 years, you know, what I would really love to see is I would love to see our initial our initial system completed. So, and, and in a stable state. So not really, you know, updates occasionally, but, you know, no major updates to the platform. So um, what I mean, what I mean by that would be um, units that are able to do that kind of minimum, um, minimum set point analysis. So, you know, they have a camera attached, um, they have sensors attached, they are able to detect objects, categorize them successfully, and there is a pipeline where the public, even if you don't own a Skyhub, can go and view the videos that are coming out of Skyhub um, and, and pull the data if you want to do data analysis as well, if that's of interest for you. So that would be if we could reach that goal. Um, and I don't it's not really that's that's not even as long term as 10 years. But if we could hit that goal, that would really be. I would feel like we've done exactly what we've set out to do in, cool. in terms of further stuff. What I would love to see would be, I would love to see sky hubs used for other purposes besides just, you know, detecting airplanes or, you know, those sorts of things. I would love to see a sky hub. Um, I would love to see groups develop sky hub for, you know, astronomy for um, measuring, um, you know, attaching there's, there's, very cheap um, telescope telescope uh, systems that can be added to things like Raspberry Pi, say for example, today. Um, Skyhub uses the the Jetson uh, platform, um, which is a microcomputer like a Raspberry Pi, but from Nvidia. Um, you know, development of something like that on top of Skyhub, I think, would be really fascinating and interesting, and add another layer of what it can do. I would also love to really see. I would love to see the units themselves get cheaper um, and the software get more robust mm-hmm. to the point where for you to purchase the stuff you need to make a Skyhub work, you're spending a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. That really in, in, in 10 years, I think that's absolutely doable right now. A Skyhub can cost depending on what you want to put in it and everything else, you know, around a hundred, around a thousand dollars, thousand to two thousand dollars depending on the cameras you want and how many other sensors you want to add and all that other stuff but i think as we develop you know every every month that we develop it gets a little bit cheaper um but the hardware really is the area where uh the cost comes in and those are hardware pieces that we have no control over right we're not we're not building um we're, we're not building our own cameras or something so right um 10 years that's what i want to see so i want to see a sky hub that's fully functional um, that only costs you a hundred bucks. I love that, man. Again, it's um, sort of democratizing the entire 
uh, yeah. experience, you know? I mean, the more people who can afford to do Skyhub, the more data we're going to get, the more we're going to understand what we're dealing with, and everyone wins. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also using the software and technology you guys are creating um, for other purposes, you know? I wrote this huge, scary article over at the debrief about um, satellites and how there are satellites right now that can literally zoom into your bedroom and can actually pierce through solid walls to capture images. And that sounds absolutely terrifying. And the the breadth and scope of these satellites seems very, um, uh, you know, like privacy breaking. Mm-hmm. But um, we have to keep in mind, too, some of these satellites that are monitoring the Earth 24-7 are being used for really good purposes, such as natural disasters and being mm-hmm. able to get that information out to the public sooner, be like, yo, this fire's coming your way, get out of there, or um, to better prepare for things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's great that, again, Skyhub is not just for looking for UFOs or, um, you know, it's there's a reason it's called Skyhub and not UFO Hub or something like that, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, actually, you do bring up a good point, and it's actually something I should have probably, maybe it'll end up in a listener question, but the privacy issues... Um, we take those extremely seriously and, you know, it's such an important thing. I mean, you know, we're, (laughs) you know, if, uh, if you, if, if someone came to me and said, Hey, I'm a UFO researcher, let me put this, uh, 24 hour camera on your house. I would tell them to go to hell. (laughs) You know, I would, I would, uh, they would not get past my lawn. Um, (laughs) The camera is built to only measure when it detects an object. That's number one. Number two, one of the things that we are detecting for um, at the early stages here are things that we tell, want to tell the camera, don't measure this. Right? Mm. So, for example, if you, you know, my, my unit for the winner, um, because my enclosure isn't very good or wasn't very good for a long time was sitting here in my office and the most common object, my Skyhub unit detected were my cats. <laughs> right. Um, so that kind of thing, we would tell it, Hey, throw this out. Right. Or if it sees a yeah. person, throw it out or, um, you know, automatic masking of buildings or surrounding areas to retain privacy. So all of that are things that we're taking very seriously. And again, if you're interested in those kinds of, um, if you're interested in any of this, but um, you know, join our join our Discord and ask us to be part of the team because we are um, we are again an open project, so anyone can join. And uh, so long as you have the time and the desire to, we're we're happy to have your help. Cool, man. Yeah, and we'll definitely put those links in for people um, at the end here. Let's move on to this listener question. Um, One on Facebook, longtime listener of the show. So shout out oh, to Ona. Hey. Thank you for all your yeah. support. Yep. He's the awesome. Bald He's, scientist. The bald scientist. Exactly. He's got a curveball for you here. I like this one. Um, the Tic Tac type of UFOs. I'm partial to the nuts and bolts model to explain them, but what gives me pause are two main properties of them. Their apparent lack of interaction with the environment uh, you know, lack of sonic booms and uh, hypersonic speeds, he says, 
And even more weirdly, their uncanny ability to stop on a dime. Inertia be damned. This is a, you can tell he's a scientist. Do you know of any material that even theoretically could be manipulated to express both these properties of the Tic Tac? It's a really good question. The reason I think I know One well enough to say that one of the reasons he's probably asking the question on inertia is if you guys have ever seen the movie Spaceballs, <laughs> there's the part <laughs> where when they come out of ludicrous speed or whatever, they stop. And then Lord, you know, Helmet or whatever, Darth Helmet goes flying, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> he kind of wakes up. Ah, what's going on? Love it. Um, so um, anyone that's been on an, on a bus that has stopped suddenly or even in, in a car that stopped suddenly um, and been jolted forward will know um, what the problem here is for something like a Tic Tac object where it, is going very, very quickly, then stops. Inertia would suggest that all of the occupants of the Tic Tac are jelly um, yeah. after they hit the side of the uh, the wall, right? So they experience G-forces and the forces of the wall, you know, all those other things. In terms of the... We have things that can lessen the effect of G-force but not materials, but like you can imagine, for example, like I just gave a stupid. Um, so actually a lot of high schools will do this experiment with their engineering students where you build a protection, um, a protection device for um, an egg that goes into a water rocket. Right. Oh yeah. That's um, cool. I've heard of in that. This, in this scenario, we're the egg. <laughs> right. um, and we don't want to become a goo so one thing that we could do for example inside an object like that or a tic tac or whatever is um, and I'm not a you know I'm not a civil or an aeronautic aerospace engineer but right. one could imagine for example a internal an internal cavity that actually is also always in motion so you have kind of a – so like imagine you're on you're on an airplane, but you are on – you're sitting on a, on, a, on a bike. And so the airplane stops suddenly, but you're on the bike, and the bike has its own separate stopping mechanism of the – your inertia, you would still stop. So the, the airplane stops and you keep moving. But because you have your own braking mechanism internally to the airplane, you can stop at a at a good enough speed that you do not um, you are not impacted by uh, or you're impacted less than you know by the G force or whatever. That is one potential um, kind of idea that you could do, right? So there's ways that you can kind of design maybe around that. But again, we're talking like. This, these are the uh, – there's an aerospace engineer someplace listening to this that's being like, these are the ramblings of a lunatic mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like so there's, there's like stuff you can do. I mean, you know, we, we do some stuff like that too with um, – you can think like with ballistic uh, ballistic vests or stuff like that, right? Those are all designed to lessen the impact of a ballistic impact on a person or on an object or whatever. 
similar sorts of technologies could be applied to things like an air, you know, a spaceship or whatever. In terms of the ability to kind of um, the ability to to seemingly not be affected by shear um, or the kind of you know wind drag or stress or things like that that come from being in an atmosphere, there are surface coatings that can allow you to much significantly lessen drag. Um, there's also ones that can greatly decrease um, decrease you know the the heat generated or things like that, and also ways that you can besides just not feeling the effect. There are also, again, ways that you can kind of mitigate the force of those things. So, for example, there are nanomaterials that are structured in such a way that heat transfer is limited to a maximum value because the material is so small um, in some direction that the, the quanta of heat energy, the phonon, literally cannot transport through the material. Mm. That, so that would be another thing that potentially you could think about, you know, uh, something like that maybe could happen. But, you know, again, I think that, um, you know, so there are possibilities there for things that could maybe be happening. And sometimes I think the answer is less – sometimes the answer is less exotic than we think it is. Um, mm. You know, I mean – the you know if you painted um, you know painting an object white versus painting it black will change the amount of thermal radiation it gets from sunlight by a huge factor, right? That's a yeah. simple change you can do. So there might be other simple changes we can do that we just don't know of yet um, because we just haven't had to face that problem with engineering. Such a good point. Yeah, we are. We are cursed by our own limitations at times, but uh, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Well, One, um, he just leaves this comment too, and I'd love to read this, even though it's not a question. He puts it really well. Personally, I hope these things are from other countries and not from out there. You see, if they are from here, at least we have a decent chance of replicating such technology, like you said, and um, even developing defenses against them, because there is no significant difference in the technological capabilities between countries. On the other hand, true alien tech is bound to be thousands, perhaps millions of years ahead of ours. In that case, there will be nothing we can do if they decide that they are done with us, which I wouldn't blame them at this point, Chris, would you? Oh, no, we are. uh... (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) A lot of self-reflection. Yeah, that's oh boy. Uh, you know, I think One is totally right though. If 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 this is another country doing this, um, I was you know I was just I was watching yesterday actually a documentary on or a series of documentaries I guess on World War Two, and they got up to the point where they were talking about the the V one and V two uh, rockets, and just thinking about how big of a you know, at the beginning of World War II, people were going into people were going into battle still on on horses, on horseback. And by the end of it, we were having tank, you know, tank only battles. Technology has changed a tremendous amount just in our lifetime. From to think that a chat like this even 
talking via video in real time with crystal clear picture. When I was a teenager, you know, that two in the year 2000, the year 2010 would have been nigh unthinkable. Yeah. You know, it would have been something that we would have like, you know, in 2010, I think we would have been like, yeah, okay. That's probably on the horizon. But when I was a kid, you know, I, like I, the first computer we owned was a was an IBM PC Junior. He <laughs> used DOS. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, our technology has progressed a huge amount. It probably has far outpaced our ability as a species to handle it, really. And so, to think that another country who maybe was focusing more on um, surveillance or stealth or um, drone building or whatever couldn't have gotten a decade or two ahead of us. I don't think that's that ridiculous to think. Um, and that's the other part of it too. You know, the other answer to One's question from before, what happens to the inertia or whatever? What if there's no organisms inside the, inside the object? Yeah, exactly. Right? What yeah. if it's just a robot? What if, what if the Tic Tac is just a drone? Then the we're no longer talking about an organic, you know, being being affected by inertia. We're talking about a machine, you know, and the machine. And it's common there. sense, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, That's we how we do it. We don't send men to the moon first. We send out, you know, probes and whatnot to check it out. So right. that we makes total our, sense. We let our billionaires send people to other planets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or our monkeys. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's a. Uh, it's not – it's so – you know, the idea that this could be from another country I don't think is really – it's not out of the – it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, it isn't. And, um, you know, the concern with that being when you have people like Christopher Mellon or Luis Elizondo or anyone for that matter saying, you know, could it be Russia or China? Possibly. We don't think it is. Um that's troublesome. I talked to Micah Hanks about this recently. If it is Russia or China, then those are acts of war coming into a training space for the Navy during a training exercise. Like, dude, come on. How much more of an act of war do you need? So if it is Russia or China, shouldn't we be seeing, you know, the the uh, top gun scenarios coming out and Maverick shooting those things out of the sky. And we're not, we're seeing them disappear out of the atmosphere. uh, Supposedly. That's the other part of it that I think is so, the other part of it that I think is so fascinating as well is we, so I guess two thoughts on that, right? The first one would be, you're absolutely right. If this is a, if this is as serious a national security concern as well, I think it's – our world is so different and so much more diplomatically oriented than we were, you know, pre the United Nations. Like we – you know, we have evidence of like atrocities being committed in North Korea. You know, let's take an example of a country that we don't even have trading or real diplomacy with. Right, like we know that the North Korea is a is a terrible country where a dictator reigns supreme and is doing these terrible things and everything else. And yet 
our military and our leaders can't act on that because of all these other socio-political uh, concerns and, and things that we have to consider, you know, these other considerations. So the idea that we wouldn't, you know, to me then the argument that we, if we saw something like this in the sky and we wouldn't go after it immediately, I, I don't know. That kind of makes logical sense to me, but at the same time it is, it is frustrating because you'd think, again, if we don't know what they are, we'd want to find out. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we're, like you said, we're seeing that reflected even right now in Israel and everything. Um, There are certain actions you can take and some you can't due to, like you said, so many socio-political issues and whatnot. So yeah, even if it was Chinese or Russian, would we immediately say, okay, let's go to war. Let's do this. Like, this is the reason. Or... A lot of people think right now that all the mainstream coverage having to do with the military and the potential threat these objects could cause, is this leading up to something? You know, are we trying to boost the military funding yet again with all these possible threats in our skies and our national security being threatened? I mean, you know, maybe the thing is that too, like, you know, I don't think we really need UFOs to uh, make the case right now that, say, Russia is an adversarial bad actor who doesn't want what's best for the United States. Right? Like, that's the other part of this, too, that I think is so funny is people, you know, people on Twitter or or wherever talking about UFOs will often act like this is the only thing going on in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's not. It is a very small part of things. That overall, I think, you know, even like, say, Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio's involvement, you know, from my kind of cynical viewpoint, is a very convenient story to get him out of the news, (laughs) right? So, you know, I think, so the other thought, the other thought, I guess, I had based on what you were saying was, um, so imagine... Imagine pre-World War II, the V-2 rocket is out there. And who reports on the V-2 rocket being real is the same person who reported on, um, I don't know, a year before had done a report on fairies in Wyoming, right? Like fairy folk and gnomes in Wyoming. Claiming that they were traveling around in ships and whatever. Yeah. And then these rockets come out. They're like, actually, no, it's a military thing. The the problem, again, with the message, the problem is not necessarily the message. It becomes the messenger in their history. And it's something that I don't think people in the UFO space have really grappled, or UFO fans, I guess, haven't really grappled with. You know? I remember... When the when this first you know the first report about this the task force or whatever came out and everyone was you know people were like on you know on Twitter you know all excited and everything else and you had some of the old you know older UFO people who'd been involved in this before and seen disclosure come and gone a hundred times and whatever and they were all saying you know hey this has happened before and what happened last time was you know. Linda Moulton Howe's documentary on cattle mutilations got some normal media attention 
And then people started looking into the backgrounds of the players and the actual story and everything else. And it all fell apart. Right. Hmm. Um, they don't seem to realize that like the, this is, a, if it is an important story, if it is a real national security threat, if it's a real national security issue that they're working on, why publish a book like hunt for the skinwalker? Why hmm. do a Bob Lazar documentary? Like, like, is it, is it serious or is it not serious? Yeah. It's one or the other. And so you can't have it be, you know, it's just entertainment. So, you know, we're just putting, you know, that, that was the thing with TTSA that always really kind of frustrated me was on the one hand, you had them coming out saying, no, this is really serious stuff. These are national security issues, everything else. And then you'd ask them, well, why are you publishing a Bob Lazar doc, you know, biography? And they say, well, that's our media arm. I don't know. There's a reason that. There's you know Northrop. There's a reason Northrop Grumman doesn't have a media arm that publishes <laughs> stories on you know uh, flying rockets or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, there's a reason that Raytheon doesn't have a superhero as their logo, who's got comic books and movies and you know because it's serious. It's a serious thing. People die, um, and you know, so it, it just it's so frustrating to. You know, it, it, it is the same thing with some of the figures, too, where you just you have to say to yourself, you have to wonder again. You know, like Greer Greer recently pushes out this thing saying that Elizondo is it a, you know, uh, what did he say on his YouTube thing? Elizondo is disinformation a disinformation agent, disinformation uh, agent and false flag alien invasion. You know, pending. It's, yeah, it's like, OK, well, then if it's serious. At least Greer has Greer, I think, at least has taken himself too seriously his entire career. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's this sort of thing of, you know, is it is it serious or not? It, it has to be um, it has to be one or the other. I think for a lot of people, the argument of, you know, well, they're just doing that because it's just good TV or because it's just media exposure or whatever. Media exposure is not the kind of currency of the realm that people seem to think it is for national security issues. It's yeah. very strange. You know, there's a, reason, there's a reason spies don't go on the History Channel. <laughs> you know, there's a reason yeah. that doesn't happen. It's a little contradictory. Such a good yeah. point, man. Um, all right. Well, let's move to, I guess, let's move back to Skyhub for just a moment. Our last Skyhub question of the day. Uh, David on Twitter asks, um, let's see here. What skills or knowledge are you in most need of to help move Skyhub forward? Really good question. So we currently would love uh, developers with skills in, in Golang, in Python, in C, um, in Java, any of the kind of, you know, uh, any of the languages that, that we write the code in currently. Um it would also be really great or really useful to have people involved to help us kind of take the machine learning and um, user interface side of things to the next level. So uh, people with experience in database management or building um, would also be very, very welcome. Um, and also, you know, just people interested and ready to be actively engaged in this. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, this is a project where people are working for free. We're spending our free time to build this. 
because it's it's a labor of love. That isn't everybody's cup of tea, you know. So, but if you think that it's something that you'd like to be involved in, and it sounds something like something that you think it would be um, a good way to spend a part of your weekends, please reach out to us. You know, team at skyhub.org is the email. So, shoot us an email. We'd love to have you. Cool, man. And again, I think it's important to stress that all of you at Skyhub are dedicating your time, your insight, uh, even your own money to making this happen. And I know you guys have a Patreon as well. And a couple of people were wondering, um, what is the Patreon for? How can they support you guys? And and where does the money go for the Patreon campaign? Yeah, it's a really good question. So all of the Patreon money goes towards uh, development costs. So we actually, um, we just put in a order for um, some Skyhub enclosures. So what those are, are they are kind of a thermoformed 3D print, or not 3D printed, thermoformed cases where people can build and put their Skyhubs and have an, an official enclosure, right? Um, a big chunk of the money goes towards paying, frankly, for server cost. <laughs> so paying for someplace to put the data. Yeah, um, man. It's not know, cheap, I know. <laughs> no, that, the website, um, all of those other kinds of aspects and things. Um and then ultimately the goal uh, ultimately the goal would be to have uh, the ability to get professionals working on Skyhub um, part-time, right? So paying people, you know, for three hours, four hours of, of specialty programming work or whatever where our team can't, um, you know, where our team can't, uh, what's the word? Where our team maybe doesn't have the expertise or the ability to handle mm. um, a specific aspect or a specific thing like that. So, yeah. You know, um, it's a great question, though. And another thing that we are, um, what's the word? Another thing where we are currently figuring out, you know, this is, for a lot of us, the first time that we have, for some of us, it's not the first time that they've worked on kind of a charity or, or something like this. For me, it really is the first time that I've kind of worked at this high level of a charity um, or a kind of an organization, not charity, a non-for-profit kind of endeavor or project and right. citizen science project um, being, being, um, being transparent with the money is also an extremely important aspect of that. Um, and so that's another thing that we are, um, you know, if we had all the time in the world, um, all of this stuff would be done already. <laughs> we don't, it is a public project, but um, that's definitely something else that we, we hope the public will keep us accountable on and keep us moving forward with. Right. But, but right now though, like I said, um, you know, the money is going towards, so the building and developing of the, uh, the enclosures for, uh, you know, environmental conditions more extreme, let's say than my garden, um, (laughs) uh, the development of, uh, you know, or, or the kind of cloud computing costs and things like that that we have and the, uh, the storage costs. Awesome. Yeah. And again, I think that's really important to sort of demystify the whole, um, contribution thing. You know, a lot of people want to know, well, you're not using this money to go on a vacation, are you, Chris? You know, so it's good (laughs) to know what is actually being done. And I highly suggest everyone check out your Patreon campaign over there. It's very, very important for something like this. For the public. Yeah, definitely um, check it out. I mean, that's the other thing too. We've toyed with like, 
we've toyed with idea in the past of like trying other the good the good news right now is that our our need for money we break even right now you know what i mean our need for money doesn't uh overcome the amount of money we have every month coming in which is great which <laughs> right. is perfect it's exactly where you want to be but as more of these units come online as we want to do bigger things or bigger projects with this or or stuff like that you know um it's it's gonna you know that's what the patreon really is for to kind of build that base up and make sure yeah. that we're ready to operate in the in the coming years so that there is a sky hub in 10 years exactly man come out swinging i got you um yeah. well moving to the podcast my man before we go here tell us about the mad scientist podcast maybe some of your favorite episodes you guys have recently done. I know you did like a huge multi-part series on time travel, which is so cool. A topic everyone can relate to and find interesting. Um, but you guys break it down, which I love. So yeah. What do you got going on over at the Mad Scientist podcast as of late and in the future? Yeah. So the so the show that we do is the Mad Scientist podcast. It's me and my co-host, Marie. Um, and so our show really looks at kind of the history philosophy and uh, hard science behind topics that usually come up in science fiction or on, you know, uh, I don't know, just, just science fiction kind of topics and things like that, but also looking at parts of the science world or science history that maybe you weren't taught in school, but are still really interesting. So um, my favorite series probably are, we did one on the history of surgery, which was fascinating and terrifying and uh, just really, really fun to research for. We did one uh, we did one on Robert Bigelow and kind of the beginnings and early early time period of uh, the Skinwalker Ranch saga and how it played into to the Stars Academy and, and how it really got us to today. And we did a series recently, like Ryan said, on time travel which was a lot of fun. And we kind of go into, you know, what is time as kind of a physical concept? What does it mean mathematically? How do we use it in our mathematics? Um, all of those kind of big questions ultimately getting to, okay, well, you know, what does this mean for time travel and what does it mean for our ability to go back or forward in time? So it's been a lot of fun. Check it out. We're available on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google play, all, uh, we're available now on Pandora too, which, uh, you know, we're just, we're just available everywhere. So go find us and take a listen. Yep. Absolutely. Anywhere you find somewhere in the skies, mad scientist podcast is there as well. Um, well, you know, closing question as always, my man, you know, this role by now, where can we find everything you're up to and where can we find Skyhub to learn more? Yeah. So you can find Skyhub at skyhub.org. That's where you'll find the link to our discord server, uh, so you can come in and ask us questions. That's where you'll find our, our uh, Git uh, repository. So where you can actually go and download the code and see the inner workings and everything else. Um, you can find us on Twitter. So at uh, Skyhub10 is the main Skyhub page. But there's also, obviously, you can you can follow me at Mad Scientist Pod. Um, you know, follow other folks from the team on Twitter as well. Our Twitter handles are up under the, the team kind of heading on the Skyhub website. Um, and you know, our next kind of big appearance is going to be at the SU conference here coming up, 
Um, we have a video presentation on kind of what Skyhub is, how it's evolved, the software and the hardware and all those sorts of things. That, that'll be going up on YouTube after the conference so people can go see it. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's really the best place for people to find us. So I'm on Twitter all the time, probably too much. So you can always find me on Twitter yelling about something. So we all <laughs> are, man. we all are. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up SCU. I know you guys are working with them and also with the UAP expedition group who's going out to the Catalina Island to monitor the activity out there with a Tic Tac event took place. So that's really exciting. I highly suggest the YouTube channel where you can watch some of the videos that Skyhub devices have captured, which is really cool. The comments are great hearing everyone say what they think it is and, and everything in between. So no, man, you guys got a good thing going on. I am so happy to like be in this generation that is taking UAP seriously, is trying to put more science into all of this and trying to understand these phenomena that continue to mystify us, brother. So thank you for coming on Summer in the Skies. And uh, yeah, thank you for being a part of Skyhub. I think this is the future of UAP studies, bar none. As always, man, thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we can't wait to uh, can't wait to have some really good videos here that we can uh, keep sharing with you. So we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thank you. In the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.